This episode will include conversations about shoulder dystocia, birth trauma, and infant death. Please consider yourself and how you're feeling before tuning into this episode. Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About this? this? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Be Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Today, I'm chatting with Imogen Walker, a mama of angel baby Asher. Immy's pregnancy was considered low risk until a drastic turn of events occurred during the delivery of her baby. Asher's shoulders became stuck under her pelvis, a term known as shoulder dystocia. And due to the traumatic delivery, baby Asher was deprived of oxygen for far too long, which then caused significant brain damage, and he later passed away in the NICU. Imi is sharing her story today to continue the very needed conversation around shoulder dystocia, infant death, grief, and loss. Imi, I can't thank you enough for coming on today to share your experience with us, but I am so with you in the sense that this is something important to be talking about. Yes, definitely. And hands down, like one thing I've learned throughout this whole process is so many people say, oh, this happened to me and I didn't know until my second pregnancy or I have a baby at home with a disability. And um, some mums have blamed themselves along the way thinking, did I do something wrong during pregnancy, this or that? And it's been on their mind for years. And then they find out when they have a second child that, oh, my child was deprived of oxygen at birth and that's why this happened. So it can be very freeing for a lot of mums to know what has happened, but I definitely think that women should not be finding out about this only once it has happened to them or (laughs) later on, especially during consecutive pregnancies because it would really help people to be able to make an educated plan and have area to give consent at understanding the risks even though it is small it just would be nice for women to be included in their choice making um, for anything that may affect their child's safety so I really hope sharing with you today might get some people to go oh I'll, I'll be a bit mindful of this and if anyone's listening and it has happened to them too I know a lot of children don't end up passing away from shoulder dystocia maybe it gets managed faster or something like that but hands down it's not an easy task to walk because you take babies home as well. So I wanted to ask about how your pregnancy was with Asha because you mentioned that you were in a low risk category. Yeah. However, you had some kind of intuition, gut feeling that something wasn't quite right. Yes. (laughs) It still blows my mind that I was low risk. And I also want to point out that Asha's case of shoulder dystocia has been noted as mild. (laughs) Yeah, she (gasps) died. What? Yeah. (laughs) So um, there's a lot of things that do feel quite... um, 
like the whole situation is quite undervalued in terms of the severity of putting everything under that low risk banner. But um, yeah, so basically my pregnancy was amazing. It was beautiful. It was a bit, I don't really know how to put it. Like I was a first time mum and it was peak COVID. Didn't really know what was happening. Couldn't go to the doctor because of all these things. Couldn't go see my midwives yet around 20 weeks or so. So I was kind of on my own for the whole first half of my pregnancy. And then I knew I wanted a water birth and approached the birth center. And my pregnancy journey through there was actually amazing. Very supportive, very reassuring in certain ways. There was lots of information on diet and looking after baby and things like that. And it felt like a very safe, non-medical place, but also gave me the reassurance that it was attached to the hospital were anything to go wrong so yeah it was a great pregnancy great experience and I was very blessed to enjoy that time with Asha because I know some mummies have a very very hard pregnancy and considering his size I don't know how I was this crazy woman going to the gym every day swimming walking poor hubby was getting dragged around left right and center Um, and it was just really beautiful like really really great um and it wasn't really flagged along the ways of my pregnancy journey that size was an issue if that makes sense so from my understanding everything was going good wherever I was anxious I was being reassured any of those little mama instincts I had I was just being very supported and reaffirmed but now I look back and just go oh my gosh, like, yes, that support was so lovely. And I understand people don't like to scare people unnecessarily, even if they can't prove something will happen. (laughs) But I definitely now this time around in this pregnancy value information so things can be very black and white and there's no room for anxiety at all. (laughs) It's very factual based. And right. so, yeah, my pregnancy was hands down amazing. And so then you get to labor. Now at any time, any point in this conversation, Emmy, please know that you can you can stop oh, yes. if you need to or you don't have to share every single detail. You just share what you're comfortable with. I don't want to push you in any way yes, shape or form. You. So please know that. Yeah. So you described your labor as really beautiful and you were really happy with the way that things were progressing mm-hmm. until it came to delivering baby Asha yeah can you tell us what happened so for anyone listening it might be a little bit intense and you'll probably think I'm sharing way TMI but I'm only going to share the tip of the iceberg (laughs) so just be mindful but um yeah my labor itself was beautiful unfortunately there were some communication issues um in the hospital so I was a little bit anxious and I wanted my water's broken and eventually three days after me choosing induction because I was a low-risk woman I was sent away came back and then that started um meanwhile Ash was getting bigger (laughs) but anyway um yeah so I ended up having water's broken hubby and I went for a big old walk um he got a coffee we were just trying to encourage everything as naturally 
as possible because my body was doing great things and I had had four stretch and sweeps prior but um yeah things just weren't really revving up and we didn't know why so we ended up agreeing to go on all those drip things and hormones and get the process revved up and when things were progressing a lot further my midwife from the birth center got to come and that was all the motivation I needed to feel safe and supported and then the room was really ours mine hubby's my midwives and I had a beautiful student midwife as well um and I just kind of got to navigate the space how I liked it was very calm although it was very different from my original plan and I labored in the shower for most of the time um hubby and my midwives were soaked they were doing everything to be up in there and support me and then it got to a point where things were getting you know more revved up and um yeah I just remember that I was on the peanut ball. I started getting very uncomfortable. We tried many different positions and every time I went to the bed or was seated on a ball or something, I would just feel nauseous. I was like, no, I have to, I have to be up. So that mama instinct was coming out. I'd go back to the shower, soaking everyone. They were great. And um, then, yeah, my labor was only about nine, nine and a half hours or so. It wasn't very long. And um, I remember hitting a point where I just felt like, oh, this is happening. It was very primal. I was stripped off. I was in the nutty. I didn't care. (laughs) And um, it was nice. It felt awesome. Like I felt like I was doing what my body should be doing and it wasn't actually painful. It just felt like pushing through sport, if that makes sense. And I remember putting my foot up on the bench in the bathroom and holding on to hubby and bearing down and everything was going so, so, so well. I moved my foot up onto the toilet. So obviously instinctually I was trying to get my hips as wide as possible. (laughs) Um, And then I could feel a bit of movement in my pelvis. I remember being like, oh, oh my gosh. And I bared down, was hugging hubby. I was getting so encouraged through all of this and I pushed his head out (laughs) and I felt a tear forward and it didn't hurt. I was just like, okay, that happened. And um, yeah, it's just amazing what the body does. And yeah, and hubby, I thought, oh my gosh, he's probably going to pass out at this point. But I look up at him and he's smiling and he's like, the baby has so much hair. And it was just beautiful and yeah it was like really really great I loved every inch of it up until that point and then here's where it starts getting a bit like so I could feel that movement down there like it almost felt like a little hand or like he was trying to rotate or something like Asher was actually trying to help himself out of it and I remember saying when I could catch my breath well, something's wrong. And I remember saying my midwife's names and just saying, oh, please help me. Something's wrong. Um, And I just kept being encouraged and they were kneeling down. And my other midwife actually came, who I had been supported with the whole way through. And it was all the encouragement I needed. She was going to catch my baby. 
and it just didn't go the way that I thought it would each bear down, each push. He wasn't coming, wasn't coming. I kept saying something's wrong and then they were talking and I noticed things were getting a bit like the tension in the room was just getting a bit yucky (laughs) and um, they kept trying to get me to the bed and I just said, I need to stand. Like I knew, I, I think instinctually I just needed that pelvis as wide as possible but I let them gesture me over to the bed after a bit of encouragement and his head was between my legs and it was a very awkward walk. We, I remember just getting flipped into a whole bunch of positions um, and they were really trying desperately to get him out. And a couple of things they did along the way were Roberts manoeuvres where they pull the knees to the chest or pull them up kind of towards your ears Um, They can try and rotate bubs a little bit and all this stuff was happening. Um, And I just remember looking over at the contraction machine because I had a wireless monitor on um, and I was getting confused because things were coming up and not tapering off and not getting any lower. So it wasn't like normal contractions. And I was just thinking, Mm. do I push? Do I not push? I don't know what's happening. Like I had not been talked to about what I can do as a mama in these moments. Like I just felt very scared and like things were just being done to me at that point. Like I didn't really have any sense of autonomy in the room or anything like that. And then things started getting a lot more heated. They were talking about the heart monitor, all this stuff, and it's a bit of a blur. And then I noticed hubby's crying, um, I'm looking around the room. There's a fair bit of blood. My poor student midwife <laughs> is in tears. And, um, yeah, suddenly the room gets flooded with people. And I felt like this was all very fast, but it had been like a decent 10-ish minutes. Um, and really all I can say is it should be a lot faster than that for access for help. <laughs> And um, yes, yes. Um, so that's very unfortunate because in a situation like that, minutes matter. And his little face was just stuck there the whole time. And everyone's desperate efforts were just not working. Like he was so stuck. And yeah, then this guy, this consultant walks in. I remember him gloving one hand and he just said, well, he looked me in the eyes and just said, I'm sorry. And he ended up having to shove literally his whole hand, wrist, majority of his arm inside and try and find Ash's arm. And then he pulled the arm up and over Ash's head and had to yank him out of me pretty much. Um, And when he pulled Ash out, obviously I'm a very tiny woman. I'm a size four to six. There was no space. I remember I had been handed gas at some point on the bed and everything, and I was sucking on that, but I had had no epidural, like nothing like that the the whole time, nothing further than gas, and I felt my tailbone go. Um, All this pain shoot through my pelvis. I just remember shaking, feeling cold, but I wholeheartedly felt so much relief because I was like, he's out, he's going to be fine. And then I realized he was limp 
and floppy and they were rushing to cut the cord and within seconds that um, that man had started the teeniest, tiniest chest compressions in the world on Asha and I was just sobbing. I was just thinking how, like how did this happen? So, yeah, like overall it is very hard to share but like it can happen and I just have to live with all these ifs and wondering why wasn't it managed better for us and there's so much I still don't understand about it but as they took Asha away I I was worried that something would happen again um to him and I didn't realize how long he had been without oxygen because it was all happening so fast but almost in frozen time like I was very much in shock and I hubby to leave me and go with them um, because I didn't want him to be alone if he passed away without his mommy or daddy again and yeah like I just remember trying to find everybody and just say thank you because I thought they had saved him and I genuinely felt very very grateful that I was alive because I thought I was going to die in that (laughs) That's a lot to process. Yeah, it is. It's like going from this really kind of calm birth in a sense, even though it wasn't what you'd planned or imagined initially, but being in that kind of calm state, baby's head is out, like you're almost there. Yeah, like I was like, this is the home stretch. And with every push, (laughs) I was just like, I'm going to meet my baby any second now. I'm going to meet my baby any second now. It didn't. It wasn't even on my mind. Maybe I should try these positions. Maybe I should remind people, hey, please call a code. I'm not comfortable at this point. I didn't have the knowledge to be saying or doing anything else other than thinking this is going so great. It just went zero to 100 real fast. (laughs) And our whole world just changed in an instant. And because I had such a healthy baby, I just didn't. I just think my eyes weren't as wide open as they could have been. I think I was a bit blissfully unaware. And, yeah, now I just really hope that our story can be part of someone else's survival guide or care guide for whoever they're supporting along their way because it can happen. And when it does and people are like, whoa, what is happening? We didn't think this would happen. And there's some staggers along the way. Yeah, it just can be so detrimental (laughs) because minutes really do matter in a situation like that. Yeah, definitely. So they were able to revive him and move him to the NICU, is that right? Yes, so this is where Asha's NICU journey started and the NICU ended up being such a beautiful safe haven for us in our time at the hospital All of the staff were so amazing, encouraging. They cried with us and for him. Um, And he, hands down, was getting so much attention. They usually don't see huge, chunky monkeys in there. Um, And he was getting coconut rubs every single day. He was getting his little hair combed. um, And they were just 
amazing. Every single thing I asked of them, they tried to cater for. But the first three days were a little bit um, confrontational in there in terms of learning the severity of things for Asher, um, seeing the state he was in and being a community support worker myself for children with disabilities, I knew that the the seizure activity he was having when we first saw him after the labour and the oxygen deprivation, I just knew that this was going to be a challenge going forward. But whatever it would bring before we knew that he was actually in palliative care and he would probably die, I knew that, oh, if anyone can handle this, it's us. I was like, he's going to have the best carers. I know how NDIS works. I was like, I've got this. There wasn't a doubt in my mind or any tears from my eyes at all thinking about his state because I was just so thankful that my child was in the best NICU in this hemisphere and that he was alive. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of where all the NICU stuff started, but we didn't actually get to cuddle him or hold him or anything like that until he was three days old. So because of the birth trauma, he was on a very special mat um, in his little incubator-looking type thing, (laughs) and um, it called him to kind of protect his brain from that activity. Yes, so it was very hard. We could hold his hands and little feet and kiss him and then all the monitors would go off screaming at us because his temp would be coming up so we kind of have to pull back a bit and wait a little bit longer and then love on him a bit more and I think we were just in total shock and awe of how truly big he was, as was everyone in the NICU. So Asha ended up being actually born at 4.9 kilos (laughs) yes (gasps) and considering at the scan he was only estimated 4.1 and we were reassured that those can be out and we were thinking oh okay 600 grams is the 15 percent range I was like he might be a three and a half kilo baby um Oh. It was way more out than the out even should have been. And I was just thinking, oh, my gosh, wow. And it dawned on me when we could start um, loving on him a bit more in the NICU that oh, all these tiny newborn clothes I've bought for my son are not going to fit. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry, the girls in there actually helped us put him in some three- to six-month-old clothing which fit him snug as a bug. And oh my goodness. Yes, yes. So that's kind of where we were at with the NICU. We were just loving on him the second we could. Between managing my pain and getting down there, we spent lots of time and yeah, it was beautiful. We even got to do art with him in there and the girls created a beautiful memory book and he was just so incredibly loved. And kind of to tie up that NICU kind of journey before we get into his last little bit of time it was very much a safe place and even when I had to leave him and go up to the room I was so calm because I knew that oh my gosh my son has never ever been alone without care for one single second of his life so it was very much a place that 
was just amazing. And I take my hat off to staffs that work in NICUs because they do a great, great job in the face of some very emotional situations. So can you tell us then what your last moments with Ashel was like? Yeah, so they were actually really beautiful and not quite what we expected, which I'm very thankful for. But I will section our last moments with Asha into his last moments here and then our last moments with him before we had to leave the hospital because I feel like that is never talked about Mm. by parents. And I didn't realise NICU staff did so much after a baby passes for a family. Okay. While Asha was still here, we did some footprints and they didn't currently have a whole bunch of art stuff. So they rallied the troops and raided the um, social workers office for us and got some pop sticks and we made some beautiful rainbow footprints, which now babies and parents in the NICU have access to supplies and stuff like that. Mm. Ashes prints. um, Because I think a lot of people just go okay my baby is dying they can't breathe on their own they'll never swallow on their own they're past the point of ever being able to live a life not hooked up to multiple machines keeping the vessel going what now and I think it was a bit shocking to some people that I was just like okay we're going to do some art we're going to swaddle him we're going to love him I was like I should have had months and months of making a mess with this kid dressing him up and everything I was just like let's try and make some moments put our distraughtness aside for a second and be present for him I was like the distraughtness can come later (laughs) so we did all of that and it was beautiful we had um one of the really, really beautiful Nikki nurses with us um, that put a lot of extra little bits of care into loving him. So that made the last few moments special. And we had another lady as well that we met along the way that is a very good friend now. And they let us hold him for hours and hours and hours. Mm. Our friends and family got to have their time on their own with him as well and we went back into just having that family time after everyone left and we were holding him till early hours of the morning and we got moved into a private room. They made sure the space was very calm and very respectful and the whole time I was just thinking as his mummy, I was like, I can't do this. Like it's the most kind thing I can do for him because It's not my responsibility to keep this vessel going. God, uh, we're Christians, so I thought God wouldn't want, you know, us to be intervening where things aren't really natural anymore. And it's one thing looking after a little baby on life support, but keeping a vessel going for years and years and having a huge boy and things like that, it was just not an option for me. So, yeah, we were hugging him and loving him and then, after saying like I just I can't do this like I can't I'm stubborn as and I love him and how do you make that choice hubby had some more cuddles um 
And every time Asher actually had skin on skin with me in the last few moments, his vitals, like his stats were up and high. Like he just knew he was having cuddles with mom, which was cool. And then we were praying about it and crying and, yeah, just enjoying holding his little chunky body with the warmth in it still. And then his tube dislodged, his breathing tube on its own after us repeating multiple times we just can't do this and we felt like it was his way of being like it's okay like it's my time to go now wow Um, so yeah like I'm like it's weird remembering it because I'm very teary just thinking like I'm so thankful that it had a natural kind of progression and that it wasn't confronting or anything like that and it wasn't forced or rushed in any way it just was happening and we were like oh okay and then after um they took the tubes out and stuff while he was still having a cuddle I realized he's just as stubborn as me (laughs) and he hung on for ages like we cuddled for such a long time like towards an hour And he was fine and kind of breathing on his own, but he was having to be suctioned here and there because he didn't have a lot of the normal reflexes that we don't even think about. And um, they were just trying to keep him as comfortable as possible. And then I realised amongst all of this that, oh, my goodness, his nana is in the room with us and she's never even held her first grandson. So even though it was, I knew these were our last moments and I knew the second he was off me, he would probably start going downhill. But I felt like he just wanted to include everyone. (laughs) And yeah, we gave Nana some cuddles and then he went back to dad and we were all kind of just snuggling as a family. And it was so peaceful. His stats just slowly, slowly dropped and he passed away um, having hugs and staff were crying and we were crying and everything was super quiet. Yeah, it was very early hours of the morning and we were just like, what? What now? Like, it just seemed so surreal. We had months of growing this beautiful boy and that bubble, that safety bubble of that care kind of just got popped because I was just like, well, this is just a vessel now. Like I felt like he had left our arms and gone up to heaven and was somewhere safe and not suffering anymore. But it was definitely very hard and surreal. And then the staff really helped navigate us through that. So I don't know what I would have done without them. Something that really stands out to me, and I mean, we hear this all the time when we hear about like premature babies having skin to skin with mum you know, brand new newborn babies having skin to skin with mum. But I find that so fascinating how Asha was, in a sense, thriving with skin to skin or having cuddles with you. That blows my mind. And I I just think like that, it really does come back down to basics, doesn't it? Like mum and baby. It's crazy. It's so powerful. It's beautiful. And even the staff say sometimes there are just things that happen in the NICU that are beyond medical explanation. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Yeah. but, I mean, we prayed the whole time and we were kind of hoping 
for a miracle. I was hoping that mummy magic would kind of defy all odds and everything. But at the end of the day, this situation, there's so much good coming out of it for other people through sharing and everything. And it it makes me feel like in a way Ash is still carrying on something and still trying to touch others like his little light still shining so that gives me a little bit of comfort that for me I don't feel like his time or presence just ended there in that NICU no skin on skin but it was so cool that he hung around um a bit Mm. longer yeah so I'm curious to know Emmy because I think that this is something that's not spoken about a lot Mm -hmm. how do you even begin to cope with this so you leave the hospital yeah without your bub yeah you you look and feel like you've just given birth you have now this postpartum recovery and body yeah without your baby I, I can't even begin to fathom what you have been through in those moments it really is surreal it feels like a period that you just cannot survive like everything in you primarily is just going look after your baby where's your baby like your body has all these hormones and all these urges and you rationally know as a person they are not here anymore and that hurts so much but your body doesn't really get that so it is very very hard and that's the part I wanted to talk about after the NICU when Asher was passed away is when he was near me and things like that even past I was still leaking I still had to pump like there was a lot going on and yeah like it was just wild and then even leaving the hospital the distance that we were traveling down the corridor and things like that, like every single inch of distance between me and him just felt so instinctually wrong, even though I logically knew he wasn't there. And yeah, my body was just sending off all these warning signals for quite a while. Um, But yeah, we got to the car, we had an empty car seat, we had multiple pregnant women and children and people with gifts coming through the hospital and visiting. And I was just sobbing so much, I actually couldn't get anything out. And then I sat in the car, well, hubby helped me in the car and he was just a rock and no one should ever have to leave the hospital without a healthy child. And then we were just sent on our way, on the way home. I don't know how poor hubby even drove, I remember getting home and getting in the shower and just looking down and crying my eyes out because I had this beautiful belly with this big old baby in there and now I have a postpartum squishy floppy belly boobies that are leaking and I was like, what do I do about this? And I just knew it was going to be a time thing. But as the weeks went on, you might find it a bit strange. I don't know, but I actually looked down at my body and I expected to not 
um, like my body postpartum, before losing Asha, having all these, I guess, societal things on my mind of, oh, I can't wait till Nana can look after Bubs a little bit so I can have my me time and go to the gym and all this type of stuff and do things for myself. But none of that was even on my mind because every single time I walked past a mirror or was nudie and looked down, I would just like feel so much love for my body that there was some damage there because there was some signs that he was actually here and it actually became harder as weeks went on because I was very lucky to I guess bounce back a bit Um, and everything was going back to where it was and my birth trauma was extreme and things were just migrating back to where they were before and things like that and It was just surreal. I had this element of no, 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 because like that, like those were physical signs I could identify with being a mum and birth my baby. And I didn't want to go back to just looking like what I did before I was pregnant and before my son. But now um, everything is back to where it was. I'm still dealing with some physical injuries um, postpartum and we're 10 months on. (laughs) But I like my damaged skin and I like that things are actually a bit squishier because it's like he's left his mark. So, Mm. yeah. So I love that. It's so beautiful. Well, thank you. (laughs) I mean, obviously in saying that, so much pain and grief would have been involved but that I guess that tribute to your body growing a baby and then evidence of having had that baby um, is what is what I think is beautiful just to clarify thank you oh and one other thing that I thought was totally random the first time it happened to me out in public I just needed to get to the car because I felt like I was going to ball my eyes out is I didn't know that when your maternal instincts are switched on, even in postpartum, when other people's babies would cry or be screaming, poor little things, my gosh, like my body was just going wild, my boobs were leaking and I was like, what is happening? Like it was was very strange because there was this drive to be like, look after the baby and I'm like, bro, our baby is not here, we know this, so... Yeah, there's stuff like that that women that lose a baby, especially after they've gone through labour and have all those hormones kick off, there's a lot for women to navigate in infant loss and postpartum weeks on that people don't realise. Wow, that is mind-blowing. It's like I know know that, but it's like that blows my mind. I'm speechless. (laughs) It blows my mind. (laughs) I did want to ask you, though, what grieving looked like for you. So... I guess in in that way, how did his his passing impact your life? Oh, it impacted it so much and it still does and I think it always will because our home was ready for a child, our room mm. set up, we had everything. So grieving at the start was family putting things away and it was our home not feeling like a home for a while because there was someone very important missing and for me in that grief I very much dove into trying to keep myself busy and doing things for him so literally in the first maybe 24 hours I remember just being at home 
and being like, what the hell do I do now? I couldn't just switch off and relax. Like I couldn't just be like, yeah, I'll just watch TV like I usually do when I get home or I'll just take the dog for a walk. Like you couldn't um, function normally because you just felt like, well, why do I want to be doing these things when I want to be around my child? And, um, yeah, I called the social workers and just said, I need to be doing something. Can you please let me know how a funeral works? Can I talk to someone? And that gave me a lot of comfort for the first kind of three weeks. So we didn't get to have Ash's funeral until the 6th of November and he passed away on the 20th of October because there was a lot of coronial things that happened Um investigation all of that type of thing and in grieving I kind of split into two people it was I'm a mummy that's grieving my baby and I'm in so much pain and then also split into the birth trauma what has happened recognizing parts are not actually okay and being a people pleaser and a peacekeeper I very much had to grow and learn to set boundaries with communicating with lawyers, communicating with hospitals, talking about the funeral. And, yeah, it was very weird, the one side of all those feelings, so, so many feelings you didn't even know your heart could feel, and then completely just switching off and getting to work. But when you have to go through the trauma again and again to make sure that things are thorough, I think you become a bit desensitized to it. It's just like you're on autopilot, but being like, they need this from me to help this not happen to others. So I'm going to do it. That's the kind of (laughs) mental mindset I had. And then, yeah, we planned his funeral, which was actually beautiful. It was very different from what most people thought we should be doing. And then they loved it, which was great. And yeah, we have made sure that memory making has been a huge part of our grief so at the wake we had these beautiful little wooden rainbow plaques because a lot of our family members love to travel road trip go camping things like that and we pictured taking our kids on these adventures and wanted a way to include future children on treasure hunts or experiences with their brother in heaven So we had these beautiful plaques. I thought if they get lost, blow away, whatever there would, doesn't matter, doesn't damage anything in the environment. And they have been put all over Australia and there's a couple in the UK. And when we miss him, we will go on an adventure and find a little rainbow or on his birthday. Oh, I love this. It's like making me emotional. (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, and people on social media have actually gotten on board and some people have said, post it to me here so you can come here and this and that. And it kind of blew up and just warms my heart. So on his birthday, we plan on doing some of the bigger adventures and already we've noted for his double digits, like 10th birthday, 18th birthday, things like that. We're going to do the bigger trips like Europe. We're going to do Tasmania and all this stuff and hopefully go on our honeymoon where people have said, oh, we know COVID meant you didn't get to go here. Let's put rainbows here. So we still get to go to all these special places and include him. 
And when future kids are probably nagging us and needing to stretch their legs, we can be like, there's an Ashes rainbow here. Go find it. Like have some mommy and daddy peace and quiet. So I love that it can evolve with us throughout our grief. I imagine grief being so like painful and heavy and all consuming. And I'm sure it has been, no doubt about it, no doubt about it. But to transform it into something and to keep Ash's memory alive, I have no words. (laughs) I'm like generally a really like bubbly, excitable person. Like I'm like a human golden retriever. I just love, love, love people, (laughs) love adventures, big softy and a bit of a scatterbrain. So that's why I was just like, my, I was going to adventure with my kids. I was going to have fun with my kids. I was like, even if people don't get it, I'm still going to do that, even yeah. if it's in my own weird way. And, um, yeah, I I really appreciate, like, what you've just said because it means a lot. But, yeah, our grief sometimes does look messy and we are 10 months on and I still have the occasional day here or there that I need to just take off work. But um, I think when... grief hits you so hard at the start and it feels like you can't survive it and stuff like that you build a bit of endurance and being such a softy my skin has definitely thickened a bit and knowing that his journey even though it's horrible for us the fact that it can help others in a way it's something awesome for me to come back to when I'm feeling like there is nothing good from this, it's hard to be positive. My my grief is so hard. I miss my child. At least I can look at, hey, there are positives out of this. And, you know, God does use everything for good in his weird messed up ways and all of that. And it's just something I'll never understand. But the least I can do is try and do some good with it. And I feel like kids being pure-hearted and as awesome and fun as they are and just loving everyone without biases or anything Mm. like that I just feel like that's what Asha would have wanted so I have my moments but I also very much intentionally try and create time for the good too because it helps bring a little bit of that freshness back into what family means to us when it doesn't look like your normal family anymore. You'd sound like a very positive person outgoing lovable and I just wanted to I guess take this moment to say to you Imogen that I am really sorry that this happened to you and you didn't deserve this I can see Asher is so lucky to have you at as his mum thank because you. you are a special person oh thank you <laughs> you are <laughs> oh that means the world and you know when people get emotional hearing his story you know people generally say I'm so sorry and they feel bad but it just touches me that you know people have so much going on in their own lives their worlds are spinning and if their world stops for just one second For this little man to make an imprint, it actually means so much when people cry or have a chat about it with me. Like it it means something to me that it has moved you, if that makes sense. Absolutely. (laughs) This this your story will move every person that hears this and I almost feel like every person needs to hear this and it's one of the reasons I I really admire you talking about this on your socials in particular as well and like you were saying it's kind of like Asha's imprint and I'm so with you all the way I I agree so I wanted to ask you because I guess on your socials you're very sorry you're very 
vocal about shoulder dystocia Mm -hmm. and I guess the tragic impacts that Mm -hmm. it can have. So why do you think it's important families know about this? And I guess what do you feel is missing from this birth education or care? All right. So um, you might have to redirect me (laughs) um, towards the second part, but I feel like in terms of shoulder dystocia, after learning it can happen to anyone, that is really just what I want to get out there is it can happen to anyone and knowing what that kind of looks like and the signs if it is happening to you during your labor is so important because having the power and the knowledge to say, oh, I know this can happen or having those feelings as a mama and not knowing where they've come from. All I can say is just trust your gut. Do not people please. Do not worry about anything. This is your child and this is your birth. And birth is not one size fits all. And unfortunately, the health system is funded to fit people into these brackets so it makes sense for what care they get. And shoulder dystocia is the thing that doesn't really fit into those brackets. It fits into a grey zone. All that will come with is more preventative care during the end of the pregnancy process or C-sections becoming available to women if they are given the option to sign something and understanding for consent and say, hey, no, I understand my child is macrosomic, which means in the range of 4.5 kilos, even though I'm low risk, even though I'm being so encouraged and my body is doing great things, I'm not comfortable with taking that risk. I'd like to opt for a different option. And there currently isn't that option for women. Mm. If you have a huge baby on board and you're only being reassured, you're not having any information, I don't want you to take that as a comfort zone. I want you to take it as a, well, why aren't we having these chats? Maybe I should say I would like the facts instead of just being reassured because it might Mm. save a baby's life. (laughs) Well, a lot of the research I had read about shoulder dystocia was that one in 200 babies will have it. However, they can't necessarily predict it, but there are some risk factors such as the size of your baby. Um, But I still thought that was a really high statistic. Yes, and that's the thing. So what we've learned across this way of dealing through trying to learn and equip ourselves with information through so many conversations with midwives, healthcare professionals, and things like that is that shoulder dystocia is an obstetric emergency. But you're totally right in saying it can't necessarily be predicted in terms of saying like oh this child fits into this category exactly this is going to happen because it all comes down to our technology which sadly is not as great as we all might think it is and there's so many unknowns in obstetrics um, as there is with birth and things like that and so many factors but at the end of the day any baby can actually get stuck any size but um, I guess if the bubs is a fair bit smaller there's a bit more room the maneuvers are more likely to be successful Mm -hmm. and the baby is less likely to suffer you know traumatic brain injury nerve damage or fractures during the force or 
the events that unfold during the delivery if it gets stuck. So really the only way to fully avoid a shoulder dystocia is a C-section for women that are at risk. So women that have had one before, like myself, will be offered. But unfortunately for first-time mummers, if you haven't had one before, there's this kind of she'll be right attitude in the Australian culture. (laughs) And there's just so much around pressures for physiological birth, this and that. And even myself the whole way through, even when he was indicating large, um, at 4.1 kilos post-dates, I was told big babies can get stuck. The word shoulder dystocia wasn't used, anything like that. And I then said, oh my gosh, what does that mean? And I was advised to go for induction or I was also welcome to keep going. Now, you and I both know Asha passed away and he was huge. So really a vaginal birth being offered in terms of ticking those boxes and what I as a really healthy mum with a really healthy baby had access to, I didn't actually fit really well into those stats of what was going to be really great eliminating those risks for me and unfortunately if he was say affectable if we were both affected by gestational diabetes we would have been put into a high risk category and we would have had more access to better care in terms of more of a plan maybe induction around 37 38 39 weeks to stop the growth and the size getting bigger bigger and bigger or we would have had a C-section at that point of post-dates. And it blows my mind that I could have been laying in a bed in the hospital right next to a woman with the same size baby as me who would have had different care if she had gestational diabetes. So same size baby, same risks if it comes out naturally. And yeah, they just can't prove it'll happen. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people go on to have big, beautiful babies and Yeah, but unfortunately, because they can't prove that it will, I just feel like it's something that isn't taken seriously enough because they usually get away with managing it with much better outcomes than this. But as a mama who's lost a perfectly healthy baby because of it, hearing things like that is very, very hard. (laughs) So you mentioned that really the only conversation or option for you because you were considered low risk was having this physiological birth. Um, I'm curious to know after your experience now, how do you feel about the conversation around birth being then pushed to be kind of this one way that is a physiological or natural vaginal birth? Do you think there's danger in depicting birth one way? So, yeah, I do think it can be dangerous for some people, but in saying that, before this happened to me, I really wanted a water birth. I wasn't fearful around birth. I was excited. I love sports, endurance, things like that. I was like, I've got this, and I wholeheartedly believed that my body could do this and I was being encouraged every single step of the way I had continuity of care and all those things made me feel very safe Um, and I feel like an environment of a continuity of care steering towards that type of plan can be so incredibly beautiful and supportive 
and reduce so much trauma that women may experience with all these interventions in birth but it is not for everyone and I feel like if you are at risk all I would like to say is in any aspect at all for you or bubs or whatever that birth is not one size fits all we are so very lucky to have medical care and yes things are a bit oversaturated but a low-risk pregnancy does not equal a low-risk birth. It is not a trip to the day spa. <laughs> There's going to be risks involved. And if there are some highlighted to women and women are fortunate enough to have access to information and consent and fully understand those risks, I think it would be good for more of a shift towards care being tailored to each woman like one woman one midwife I love that but for me I know that a natural birthing environment without much access to a hospital and help and things like that would mean my children are at risk so overall I can just say that a birth outcome can be beautiful it can be planned you can be supported down to a T But things don't always go to plan and this is life and a birth outcome overall is not more important than the safety of your child. Instead of hours of a delivery, a birth, whatever way that someone would ideally want, at the end of the day is only hours and if you are low risk and have access to all those beautiful elements of care and that's for you, great, but for some of us, It is not. And my child's whole life is more important to me than a natural birth outcome. So my view has very much shifted. I still think water births and stuff are beautiful, but I know it isn't for me. And I wouldn't put my child in harm's way at all by letting that pressure of a natural birth and that being the huge term for society at the moment to be something that would affect me on my journey now. I'm very grounded in going, nope, I'm confident this is what is safest for me. But I got here through learning <laughs> and learning the yeah. hard way. So yeah. all I can say is I still think it's beautiful, but it isn't for everyone. So yeah. Just to be mindful. <laughs> Yes. No, I completely agree with you. I wanted to ask this question because I don't know if you can actually explain it (laughs) or describe it. Um, But what do you want people to know about what it's like to experience infant loss, which in my mind is the unimaginable (laughs) for a parent? And I don't think people quite understand. Yeah. Well, I I wholeheartedly think that infant loss is just something that you cannot wrap your head around unless it happens to you. And it is a really crappy club to be a part of. And if people end up in this club, (laughs) um, the best thing you can do is reach out to support for other people who get it. And if you are someone supporting someone who has lost a child, please don't stay away People will send a message. People will have sweet intentions and they won't know what to do. But when someone has just lost the most beautiful thing in their world at any stage of either miscarriage, stillborn, after, like they've been brought home and things like that, these parents' lives and who they are as a person has just shifted forever. 
they're going to need certain boundaries. They're going to see things from a different light now. And you can either grow with them and be a part of that, or you can stay back and then it'll hit a point where it's like, well, we haven't seen each other for months. And you know the most intimate details of their whole life. And they might see you and be thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know what's been going on in their life. This is really anxious for me. Like it can just be really surreal. And it brings up things where parents might be looking okay, but there's so much anxiety and there's so much more to infant loss in interacting in any setting than people understand. And overall, if someone who has lost a child and is navigating grief, infant loss, all of that is needing support, sometimes it's hard for us to recognize that we understand that we're lost and we don't know what to do. So Mm. we don't expect (laughs) our loved ones to fix this. You can't fix it. You can't come to the table and go, oh, I know what to do, I this or that. You just need to simply be there, whether it's good, whether it's a hard season, whatever. And because we recognize we might not be able to sort this out ourselves, we don't have that expectation of you pointing people towards supports and making sure that they have them is great because when you lose a child, your brain gets a bit funked up for a bit, if that makes sense. You can't process things. Everything exerts a lot of energy, even getting out of bed sometimes. It is the world is just a lot to deal with when your little person isn't in it anymore, especially in those first few days. So mm. just lift the weight wherever you can, do a food shop, do this, do that, check in, maybe on birthdays, no matter how many years down the track it is, send a letter saying you know, Merry Christmas to you guys and your babies. Like include it like normal, jot their names at the end of cards, include them because it will mean the world to someone that has lost a child and everyone grieves differently too. So maybe approach friends and family that have lost a child and don't forget about the rest of the family members too. It's not just about the mum. Mm. I can't stress that enough. Maybe approach them and just say, I actually don't have the words. I don't know what to say. How can I support you? That is the best thing you can do because Mm. if you can avoid the verbal diarrhea that some people kind of get when they're just wanting to help, that is the best thing ever. So, yeah, just be open to fully acknowledging what the heck. I don't know how you guys are dealing with this and all of that. And, yeah, just be there literally yeah Yeah, but I love that yeah and give people space too like um it surprised me sometimes how many events or things have popped up and then I've gotten things being like oh but you know this and this and this and I'm just thinking I've been up all night bawling my eyes out I don't want to be vulnerable and say things but if I'm just like hey I can't I can't really make it today it's been a bit of a tough season months and months on just be aware with infant loss there's not a time stamp on grief Mm. and years down the track there might just be a day that pops up that will be so pleased to anyone who's on the other side of it not understanding 
don't take it personally if we just need a day just go okay cool and keep going on about the way your world is spinning because at that moment our worlds are spinning at very different speeds and we need to understand that yeah yeah I wanted to ask you about your husband Brandon yes (laughs) How is he going and how do you think he's coped with all of this? Oh, Brandon is such a sweetheart. So the best way to explain how Brandon has coped or how he is doing is he is such a deep thinker and a deep feeler, but he isn't someone that presents as sensitive. He's not very emotional, um, but if you take time to look at someone <laughs> like him, you can just see in their eyes or hear in their voice that they might be saying this tiny snippet of whatever they're feeling, but internally they mean so much more and there's so much heart in there behind a lot of it. So he's grieved very what I would say logically because everyone grieves very differently. Some people yeah. are very emotional. Some people are very logical. And he is a bit more, well, a lot more private than me. Um, But, yeah, I'm just very respectful that we are probably on the polar opposites of the feelings and the way we express it, but it just works well. And I respect him so much and he is doing so well. He is the rock of our family and when he isn't doing well, um, it's nice when he can open up and be a bit vulnerable and just go, you know, I want to speak to my mum or something like that, um, which everyone needs. Um, Mm. Dads aren't always as tough as nails and they feel things if it doesn't come out like tears like it does for some of us mums. But, yeah, he, he has kind of coped through, I guess, working a bit and talking about, Asha in certain situations that aren't heavy like it doesn't bring back trauma for him he likes talking about the good stuff which is really great and he really just likes to be proactive in doing things for me and this future rainbow baby and carrying Asha along the way Um, he's not someone that lays down and needs that rest if that makes sense like he's a busy bee he needs to like keep going but occasionally he will get burnt out and that's okay if that makes sense so oh absolutely he's just such a good egg and I'm so thankful for him um (laughs) but yeah so he he is coping um really really well but obviously there are days here or there where we just mm. snuggle and I might be the one crying, but he might be the one hurting just as much, even though he seems outwardly appearing like he's got it together. But, yeah, yeah. he's just amazing and he's such a big, big teddy bear. So so you're pregnant again. Yes. <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. Very, I'm very excited for you. Oh, thank you. Um, and I'm sending all my positive love and yes. energy your way. <laughs> thank you. How are you feeling about birth? Oh my gosh, a lot of things. I think I my, brain, my brain's a bit fried. Hey, <laughs> I am generally a really positive person. So 90% of the time, I'm there. Um, When I have anxiety about the birth, I like to come back to the facts of I have this plan. 
my care providers are blah, blah, blah. This is the way it's going to go. And if things do go wrong, this is what can go wrong. So it's not going to be a complete shock to me. I Mm -hmm. feel prepared. I feel amazingly supported and it's great. But then sometimes I will have little moments where I just feel terrified because um, I'm also aware that the C-sections and stuff are a major surgery. Like it's not even the C-section that actually scares me. It's the fact that I have to have a spinal thing put in my back and I will be laying down on it and just knowing that it's there, that creeps me out. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm a wuss with needles, wuss with things like that. So I'm feeling well prepared in terms of the steps and the way things will go and I feel so excited to meet this baby. But there are elements of fear when you know that you're never really in control. You just have to hope for the best and pray and surround yourself with supportive people in the process. There's always going to be those little nerves there that pop up sometimes. It's just been a bit to navigate, but I'm feeling pretty confident. And weirdly, I'm in week 23 now. It's so weird because... I know that if something happened to this baby from this point onwards, there's that viable aspect or that aspect where it's like, oh, you've reached this point of your pregnancy. They get a birth and death certificate and like that weird acknowledgement. And it just makes me feel a little bit more like, like at least my baby will have markings here. It'll have you know, something like that, which I know I should not be thinking about. But when you've lost a child, it just seems surreal that any are actually going to get to come home. Like it feels like a big, beautiful dream that some people just get and you're observing like, whoa, that 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 happens. I, I need to remember that, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's exciting and very nerve wracking. <laughs> Well, I think that concludes our episode, Emmy. So thank you so much for coming on today to share your story. I know it's a lot for you to, I guess, relive, as you were saying, and talk about your experience. That can be quite heavy. So I hope you take care of yourself today after having this conversation with me. But there's so much to gain from your experience and you sharing your story. So I can't thank you enough for being vocal about this and trying to drive for change I think it's really important thank you so so much (laughs) thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode if you're listening and would like to share your story with us or feel compelled to talk about issues surrounding women's health please don't hesitate to reach out we would love to hear from you you can find us at the power of birth on instagram and facebook or on our website thepowerofbirth.net if you loved this episode, we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends. The conversation has to start somewhere. Thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode.